I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. If you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Join me as I ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that in your word you say that you have life in yourself. And that every other thing, every created thing derives its life from you. You alone have life. You alone give life. You alone sustain life. And we worship you today, Lord. We gather together as the people of God in Christ Jesus. And we worship you today as those who have been brought from death to life. You have raised us from spiritual death. And you have granted us graciously spiritual life forever. Every one of us who are in Christ. And we come to worship you, God. You're a mighty God and you are an amazing Savior, Lord. And you've taken out our heart of stone. And you've given us a heart of flesh. And you have opened our blind eyes. And unlocked our deaf ears. And you've loosed our tongue, Lord. That couldn't speak your praise, God. And we gather together as those who have been brought from death to life. We are alive in Christ. And we come to give the fruit of our lips that give praise to your name, Lord. And we honor you now and honor you forever as the Lord our God, our creator and our redeemer. The God who paid for our sins with the blood of his only son. Lord, we worship you today. And we gather together as your people to hear your word, to be addressed by you, the God that we love, our Father in heaven, the God that we serve, King of the universe. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word today. You say that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Do it today, Lord. Revive us, God, as we hear your word proclaimed. You say that the unfolding of your word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. May it be so today, Lord. God, bless the preaching of your word. Help us to understand what you have said. Help us to lay hold of these words that you have given us. You are a speaking God and we worship you for your revelation of yourself. Make us a hearing people. Tremble and at your word, ready to submit, ready to do whatever you say. This is our prayer today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts 11. And I want to remind us, as we're studying through the book of Acts, that I believe the main thing that's being communicated to us, that the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, in the book of Acts, is we are getting a glimpse of what King Jesus is doing at the right hand of God. More than anything else, that's what we're being shown as we make our way through this entire book. This is what Jesus is doing right now as he's sitting on the throne of heaven, reigning at the right hand of God. What does it look like when Jesus reigns? 
It looks like the book of Acts. And this is what we're being shown week in and week out. And one of the things I want to draw attention to today, one of those things that Jesus is doing at the right hand of God is he's taken all his authority, which is all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's using it to do something really specific. And one of those things is he's using all that authority to fulfill prophecy. Words that God had spoken thousands of years previous that had been sitting dormant for many, many generations. King Jesus is using his authority to bring those into fulfillment. So what I want us to do as we get started this morning, I want you to hold your hand in Acts chapter 11. And I want you to take a quick flip to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And I want us to get our eyes on two of these ancient prophecies that were spoken through the servant of God, through Moses. We'll start in Genesis chapter 12. If you know anything about the book of Genesis, the majority of the book traces out the story of the family of Abraham. Beginning in chapter 12, the Bible zones in on Abraham and for the rest of Genesis, it traces out his family line. What happens with Abraham? What happens with Isaac? And what happens with Jacob? Well, this is the first thing that we're told is the Bible zones in on Abraham. Let's read a few verses together, beginning in Genesis chapter one. God breathed prophecy. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. Listen closely. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what God promised. He promised a global blessing, all the families of the earth. And he promised that that would come through a descendant. Who would descend from Abraham. This is the promise. That's the prophecy. Okay. And then let's go to the very end of the book of Genesis. So these are prophecies that frame the book of Genesis from ancient days. Go to Genesis 49. The very end of the life of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. We get prophecies to the 12 tribes of Israel and to the tribe of Judah. We read these words in Genesis 49, verse 10. I want you to see this. This is what God said. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So I want us to learn this well. This is what God said. This is what... God promised, keep your eyes on the family of Abraham because one's coming from his line that's bringing a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it gets more specific here in Genesis 49. Not only are we promised an offspring, but we're promised a king. One who holds a scepter, a ruler will arise from the tribe of Judah. And what does God say? To this one, to this king, from the tribe of Judah, 
shall be the obedience, not just of Israel, not just the king that's going to come forth and rule over Israel. God said to this king from the line of Judah, to him shall be the obedience, look closely, of all the peoples. The obedience of the peoples. This is the nations, and we dug into this last week. The peoples of the earth, all the tribes, all the families, all the peoples. This is what God said. This is what God promised. But here's the thing. These promises were made, and then they were sat on the shelf of human history, and they sat dormant for over 3,000 years. For over 3,000 years of, of human history, if you're watching close... You're not seeing anything like the fulfillment that's promised in Genesis 12 and Genesis 49. You're not seeing anything like this break forth into fulfillment. Sure, we have periodic sparks of Gentiles, especially Gentile women, being pulled even into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But nothing close to the global blessing that was promised to Abraham. Nothing close. To a king that all the peoples of the earth are serving him and obeying him. And if you're a faithful Jew and you tremble at the word of God and you believe that everything that God said will come to pass. Then you're sitting there wondering, Lord, where's the fulfillment of this promise? It's sitting dormant on the shelf. We know you said this, but we don't see it in our day. We don't see this promise breaking forth into fulfillment. Where's the all nations blessing? Where's the all nations obedience to the ruler from Judah? And brothers and sisters, this is what makes this portion of the book of Acts so unique. Extremely unique. That once you get this framework, that that's the prophecy and that's the promise from the book of Genesis... Fast forward 3,000 plus years and all of a sudden in Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 13, that all nations blessing is breaking forth into fulfillment. The long awaited promise of salvation to the nations. Finally, that door is being opened. Finally, that obedience is being rendered to the king that arose from the line of Judah. Extremely unique. Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 13, salvation to the Gentiles. And what we need to be reminded of and learn is this is our story. This is us. I could be wrong, but I'm not aware of any Jewish person in the room this morning. And that means that if I'm right, okay, and I'm sorry if I'm not, if I'm not aware. But if I'm right, that means that every single one of us, according to God's word, are called Gentiles. This is our story. This is our story. God promised to bring blessing to all the Gentiles, to all the nations. And we're reading in this portion of Scripture of when God kicked open that door to salvation for all the nations. This is our story. Apart from Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 13, we would all be dead in our sins and we would not know the gospel. This is our story. This is the gracious intervention of God. The fulfillment of ancient prophecy. This is the theme that we jumped into last week with the conversion of Cornelius. Salvation to the Gentiles. And this is that same theme that we're going to continue into 
this week into Acts chapter 11. King Jesus is now conquering the hearts, not only of Jews, not only of Samaritans, but of Gentiles, those from all the nations. This is our theme as we enter into Acts chapter 11. What we're going to see in this chapter is we're going to see two different narratives in two different cities. Okay, We're going to cover both. But the theme that unites both of these narratives in both different locations, salvation to the nations, salvation to the Gentile peoples, this long-awaited promise is breaking forth into fulfillment. So that's the bell that Luke is ringing all through chapter 11. I want you to see that before we read our text together this morning. I want you to see this theme. Jumping off of the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 1. We find this phrase. This is what Luke's talking about. He says, The Gentiles also had received the Word of God. The Gentiles had received the Word of God. Wait a second, Luke. Don't you mean Cornelius and his family received the Word of God? And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke says, No, the Gentiles received the word of God. What happened with Cornelius and his family was only the beginning. It was the opening up of the door of salvation to the nations. Listen to how this theme continues in the same chapter. Go to verse 18. We read the phrase, to the Gentiles, listen, also. To the Gentiles also. Not just a Jewish thing anymore. Luke's saying, in this chapter, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. One more time, verse 20, he says the same thing. To the Hellenist also, non-Jewish people are hearing and believing the gospel. This is the bell that he's ringing. Ancient proph prophecies are breaking forth into fulfillment. This is the time of fulfillment. God had promised now... God is making good on His Word. And what we're going to close with today, so we unpack this passage in Genesis, uh, in Acts chapter 11, we're going to see that today Jesus is still doing the things that we're reading about in both of these narratives. So that's where we're going to finish up this morning. Let's start and read our text together. In Acts 11, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 18. This is that Jerusalem account. Let's read God's Word. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter! Kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. 
This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinctions. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, if you're here last week, you know that this is basically just a recap of everything that Ryan preached and taught us last Sunday. So if you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go on the internet and catch up. Um, because what we're going to do this morning is just a brief review of what's the main thing that's being communicated to us in this story about the conversion of Cornelius. And the main thing that's being communicated, brothers and sisters, is this new era of salvation. That this door to the nations is being opened by God. It's a new thing that God is doing. It's, it's, it's part of a new era. It's one of the implications of the new covenant. And what we see in the beginning of Acts chapter 11 is that the church in Jerusalem, they were ignorant of this new thing that God was doing. They didn't know about this new era. They didn't know about this new thing that God was doing. And so they criticized Peter. We read that in those early verses. Uh, verse, verse 2, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And so their criticism is regarding the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws, the Old Testament Jewish holiness code that God had said, if you eat these things and refrain from these things, you will be clean and you will avoid uncleanness before me. It's part of the way that God marked off Israel, his people from the nation. And then the opposite is also true. If you eat these things, God had said, that are forbidden by this holiness code, you will be rendered in a state of ceremonial uncleanness before God. This is their charge to Peter. You're breaking God's word. You went and ate with uncircumcised men, unclean Gentiles. And what Peter begins to respond to, to this Jerusalem church is he's bringing them into this new era. Brothers, God has done something new. God is doing something different. And as he relates this vision that God gave him, he's appealing to new revelation. God has given new revelation in Christ. 
And what we see in this vision that God has given to Peter is we see the Old Testament dietary laws, that Old Testament holy, ceremonial holiness code has been fulfilled by Christ. And listen closely, it's obsolete. There's no place for it anymore. It served its purpose. And then Jesus came and then Jesus fulfilled it. And then he set it to the side and made it obsolete. In fact, the whole Mosaic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and replaced by a new covenant that God has given to his people. Fulfillment. We are in the days of fulfillment. And one of the things, the very next implication of the dietary laws and that holiness code being torn down is all these distinctions that were being made are being torn down with ceremonial law. And this is why Peter is saying that the Spirit told him in verse 12, the Spirit is said to Peter, he told me to go with them making no distinctions. That's what the new era is about. That's what the times that we live in. This is what God has said about this age. This is no longer an age of ethnic distinctions. God has torn down these barriers and now God is doing a new thing. And this is what Peter is telling the church in Jerusalem. God's given new revelation. Special revelation. God's saying something new. And then he says, and God sealed it. With a Pentecostal manifestation. It wasn't just something that I, you know, um, ate a weird meal and heard some, some weird words and, and just blamed it on God. No, God sealed this revelation with a manifestation of Pentecost. And there was a Gentile Pentecost that as Peter was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit poured out in a visible, public, demonstrable way. To such the degree that Peter says... After God does this, who am I to stand in God's way? And so we're being brought into the new era of salvation to the nations. And, and this story of the conversion of Cornelius. And the best way I can say it is this. Clean and unclean in the new age, in the age that we live in. It is no longer determined by dietary law and ceremonial, Old Testament ceremonial law, clean and unclean now is only determined by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Okay? That's what renders you clean or unclean before God in this age. Faith in Christ and nothing else. And so listen to what Peter appeals back to when he tells this story again in Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, just turn over a few pages. And here's how he summarizes this conversion of Cornelius and his family. Acts 15 verse 8 says this. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their heart by faith. You catch that? Anyone who believes the gospel in the new age is clean before God. End of sentence, end of paragraph, full stop, faith in Jesus and nothing else. This is how God is cleansing human hearts 
and the new age. And so what's being communicated for us in Acts 11 is this wide and effective door for salvation is being opened up to the nations, opened up to the Gentiles. And according to verse 17, any refusal to go along with this new plan and this new age, any retreat back to the old way, is said to be standing in opposition to God. Who would like to sign up to do that this morning? I would like to oppose the God of life. I would like to oppose the God with all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's exactly what we're said to be doing if we stand in God's way of this all nations mission to all the peoples of the earth. Hindering, a hindrance, standing in opposition to God. So this is our theme, salvation to the nations. And this is the same theme that we continue with in the next narrative. It jumps to a different city. Antioch in Syria, but the theme stays the same. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 19. Word of God says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability... To send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. By the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what the text does at this point is it zones in on this church. And we call it the church in Antioch. And it does this for a reason. This church is, is going to become the epicenter of that mission to all nations. This is going to become the most explosive missionary church that I think you could argue has ever existed in the history of, uh, of, of uh, in all of church history. The church in Antioch. And it zones in on how this church began. And that's Luke's first move. Beginning in verse 19, we are told of how this church was founded. 
how this church was founded. We are told that men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and it is important, we'll come back to this in a minute, that these men are unnamed. We don't even know their name, but they were responsible. Actually, they were instruments that Jesus used to plant the most explosive missionary church that's ever existed. We don't know their name, but we know their men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They were scattered because of persecution in Jerusalem. And the text tells us that as they were scattered, they went on their way preaching the gospel. They were preaching Jesus wherever they had uh, happened to be, wherever they were scattered. And the text tells us that they preached the gospel and they made their way all the way to Antioch, from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is a long distance. Okay? This is a month-long journey if you were to take this journey on foot, which these men most likely did. And so they're carrying the gospel to far regions from Jerusalem to Antioch. And what we're told in this text is that as they're preaching, the Holy Spirit is blessing their evangelistic zeal. They are not by themselves as they're scattered and preaching about Jesus. The hand of the Lord is with them and people are getting saved. People are believing the gospel. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord. So they're being used like an instrument in the hand of Jesus. And the text tells us that these unnamed men are responsible for planning the church, beginning the church in the city of Antioch, which according to um, historical sources happens to be the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire at this point in human history. Most likely the third largest city in the world, only third to Rome and Alexandria, Egypt, and then it's Antioch, this huge metropolis of people, the gathering of peoples and they take the gospel right into the middle of this mega city and the hand of the Lord is with them and many are believing. So what I want us to see about these men is they are being used by Jesus to spread the gospel geographically. They took it from Jerusalem all the way to the city of Antioch. That's a geographic spread. I'm going to take it from here and I'm going to take it to where they don't have it yet. But that's not all the text tells us because it zones in and this is the main point of the entire chapter is that not only is the gospel spreading geographically, these men are being used by Jesus to cause the gospel to make a cultural jump, cultural jump. And so he says this in, in verse 21 that they were preaching to Jews only, but then we bump into that phrase. That we already, already read at the beginning of our time this morning. But then they began to preach, verse 21, to the Gentiles also. To the Hellenists also. The Hellenists also. Not just the Jewish people anymore, but those Greek speak, speakers who are who, coming out of Greek culture. And in this context, that word Hellenist means Gentiles. It means Gentiles. And so we're being told the same thing in the second story that we're, we were being told in the first story. Salvation is going to the nations. That door of salvation to the nations is being 
open. This is the theme throughout the entire chapter. Now I want us to pause right here. And I want us to think about these men. And I want us to think, what, how, how would you like to be used like these men were used as an instrument in the hand of Christ? How would you like that for your life? That the hand of the Lord would fall upon you, that the hand of the Lord would be with you, and you would be used in similar ways that we see these men being used in this narrative. I'll ask this question to Grace Community Church members. I'll ask it like this. What if God blessed a church planting team from Grace Community Church that was sent out from Grace Community Church to plant churches? What if God blessed that team in a similar way that we see God bless these men? What if the hand of the Lord was with them? What if we could say in just a short amount of time that we send out a church planting team from Grace Community Church and God gives us a, a, a great number of converts in a major city in the world. Would you like that? Is that something that you'd like to be a part of as a member of this local church that we could be used in the hand of Christ like this to bring great salvation into one of the most populated areas on planet Earth? But not just that. But not just that. What if God used us in this same similar way that not only He blessed that church planting team with a great number of con converts in a great megacity, but what if God gave us an unreached people group? Would you like to be a part of that? Would you like to be a part of a church that was being used by Christ in this way that the hand of the Lord was with them? And they're preaching not only to people who have the gospel already, but they're being used in the hand of the Lord to take the gospel to people who do not have it. God gave them massive amounts of converts in a megacity, and He gave them unreached peoples. So my question is, would you like to be used in the same way as we see these men are being used in Acts chapter 11? And then I'll ask a follow-up question. What if there was only one condition of you being used like this and our church being used like this? What if, what if the hand of the Lord could be with us and God bless us in these great and powerful ways, but the one condition is this. Nobody will ever know your name. You're not going to get glory for this mission. You're not going to get glory for this massive fruit. You're not going to get glory and be remembered in the halls of, of fame of church history. They're not going to write missionary biographies about you and no one will remember your name. Are you still signed up? Are you still there? Are you still all in on the mission of Jesus that He gets glorified even if we are forgotten. It's just a really quick reminder in this text, brothers and sisters, that the mission field service to Jesus Christ is not a place to build a platform. It's not a place to become a famous Christian. It's not a place to make a name for yourself. It's a place to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ. But praise to the living God. It's also a place that the hand of the Lord can be with you. And you can be used in great and powerful ways 
as an instrument in the hand of Christ, even if no one remembers your name. This reminds me of that phrase in the mouth of John the Baptist, John 3, verse 30, where John says about Jesus, this is the heart of this servant of God. He says, he must increase. And then he says, but I must decrease. That's the heartbeat of servants of Jesus. We're not after glory for ourselves. We're after glory for our Lord. Then the story jumps. Not only tells us how this church was founded. It also tells us how this church expanded. And how this church was strengthened by the Holy Spirit. This begins in verse 22. We're told that Barnabas shows up. Earlier in the book of Acts. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Okay? Think like a male version of uh, Paige Mitchell. Okay? Um, full of encouragement and joy in Jesus Christ. Son of encouragement. That's a great, that's a great nickname to carry around. I come in contact with this brother and my takeaway every single time is I walk away and I'm encouraged in the Lord. This is who shows up and he shows up the son of encouragement and he begins to look around at the work of God in this city. And it says this, he saw the grace of God. And guess what? That son of encouragement was rejoicing, probably because he always did. He had eyes to see Jesus at work and rejoice in the grace of God. And so you have the servant of God come on the scene in Antioch and he begins to strengthen the church. And we also see um, in, in, in verse uh, 24 that God was with him also. God was with him also. And through his ministry, even more people were being added to the Lord. This is a great evangelistic reaping. The church is expanding through the ministry of Barnabas. And not only that, they're being made strong. This son of encouragement is constantly um, uh, encouraging uh, this church in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's, that's his message to them. Don't stop following Jesus. Serve him with everything you have. Serve him with singleness of mind. Serve the Lord Jesus with singleness of purpose. Seek first the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Don't seek after all these things on earth. Seek the things of the kingdom of God. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Don't walk away. He's being used as an instrument in the hand of Jesus to bring strength, real spiritual strength to this church. In addition to this, we are told that Saul of Tarsus shows up in this same city. And that's quite a combination. We're going to soon see this combination play out in the book of Acts. So you have Barnabas there and you have Saul there. And then what's described to us, beginning in verse 26, 25 and 26, is this unique, explosive one-year period to where the ministry of the teaching of God's Word, the ministry of the Word in this city and in the midst of this church explodes. 
And Barnabas is teaching the word and Saul is teaching the word and it's exploding. And a great number are hearing the word preached by Barnabas and the word preached by Saul. And then the text tells us that that this one unique year is bearing some real powerful God glorifying fruit in the city of Antioch. This is the strengthening of this church. And that fruit is described in two ways. There's a great emphasis laid on the numeric part of this fruit. And we can be reminded by that, that when the spirit does a work, people multiply. There's real numbers. Those numbers resemble real souls that are marked by the power and gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. A great number. How many? A great number. Verse 24, a great many people. Verse 26, again, a great many people. Numeric increase. Large amounts of people in this city are being affected by the teaching and the preaching of the word of God because the hand of the Lord is with them. They're serving in the strength that God supplies. But then I want us to notice that In addition to these great numbers, the text zones in on a a different angle and describes this fruit in terms of godly character. It's not just a bunch of numbers that, that, that are superficial and skin deep. He also draws attention that this is a deep work of the Holy Spirit, that real Christ like character is being formed in this church and I want you to see that in two ways the verse uh, the first is in verse 26 we bump into that phrase that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch so for the first time in redemptive history the people of God earned this new name for themselves and I want you to think about what provoked it because this is a name that the outsiders gave the disciples Christians, And I want you to think about what would provoke an outsider to look in on a group of people. And the only way that they can describe them is Christians. This is the kind of character that's being formed in this church. Just consider this. Okay. That their character was so like unto Christ. Their lifestyle and their heart was so like unto Christ. Their lives, their aims and goals in life were so obsessed with Christ. Their speech and being around these people and their thought life is so saturated with Christ. Their lives are so intertwined and defined by Christ that the only name that will do justice to this group of people is we'll call them Christians. Those are the followers of Jesus. More than anything else, Christ is all to them. These are a people who are marked by Christ. Do you see that? Not just a bunch of numbers who could care less about the gospel. That's the great myth of the mega church movement in America. We're talking about a great number of people who are really marked and shaped by the Holy Spirit. They're made like unto Christ. They're Christians. They're Christians. 
And just one example of this godly character is shown in their response to the famine. We see that in verse 27 through verse 30. This is a famine that was predicted by the prophet Agabus. And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this was fulfilled in, um, in and around A.D. 47 and 48. There was a flood in Egypt, which was the breadbasket of the world at the time. And it caused a great famine in Judea. And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that many people died. Many people died as a result of this famine. We see what we see here is an example of godly character. Christ-like character. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit does a real work in a group of people? And it may surprise you that Luke and Acts, when he begins to zone in, on the real genuine marks of the church of Jesus Christ, one of the things we find him zoning in on is their generosity. Their generosity. We see him do this in, in Acts chapter 2, that they're open-handed with their possessions, that they're sharing with anyone who has need. We see him do it again in Acts chapter 4, same thing, open-handed with their possessions. We see him doing it again in Acts chapter 6 that they're feeding widows in the city of Jerusalem. And in every one of those examples, we're shown that generosity is a mark that the Spirit has really done a work. The Spirit has really done a work in this group of people. They don't even care about their stuff anymore. They consider themselves so united in Jesus Christ that one suffers, they all suffer. One rejoices, they all rejoice. This is one of the marks of real repentance and a real turning to Jesus is, is open-handedness and generosity. Even John the Baptist taught this when he preached that, that message of repentance. And in one of the gospel accounts, he's asked, what should, what should we do? What kinds of things should we do? And I want to invite you to go back and look at that maybe this afternoon that John gives them three examples of what repentance would look like in their life. And in all three examples, they have a financial implication. In all three examples that John the Baptist gives of what repentance would look like, all three examples have to do with how they are stewarding resources. And this is the mark. Jesus has done such a work in this church that we see them responding to the word of God, gathering together possessions. And listen, they're shipping it a month long away, a month, a month long journey back to Jerusalem. And catch this. They're doing this for Christians that they've never even met. That they've never even laid eyes on this group of people. All they know is they're in Christ like I'm in Christ. The same gospel that saved me, saved them. And we're one body in Jesus. They suffer, I suffer. They rejoice, I rejoice. This is a mark of a real, genuine work of the Holy Spirit. This church is destined to become the most explosive missionary force that's ever existed. And I believe to a large degree it's due to this godly character that we're seeing being formed. In the, the early stages of this church, the very beginnings 
of this church. Not only did they take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but they unloaded possessions to meet the needs of other believers. Godly character. So this is Antioch. Covered Cornelius. Talked about Jerusalem. And as we close today, I want to draw your attention back to verse 18. And I want to point out the response of the Jerusalem church as they heard about the salvation to the nations, the salvation to Gentiles. What did they do? Very simply, in verse 18, we read these words. They glorified God. They glorified God. They heard about the triumph of the gospel and the works of King Jesus. And they responded with praise and glory and honor to His name. And I would submit to you today that the proper response to this text, the proper response to this passage of Scripture, and the proper response of any time you hear about the progress of the Gospel, the triumphs of Jesus, is worship. The praise, the glory, and the adoration of the name of God to glorify God for His mercy. Yes, we are to work. Yes, we are to respond and work hard for the mission of Jesus, but not before we worship. We are to be astounded at a God so gracious, a God so mighty, a God so powerful that He shakes the nations for His glory. He takes a people for His name among every tribe, nation, and tongue. The whole chapter is very clear as to why we are to glorify God. Why would we hear about these things and, and our response be to glorify God? And the reason why this mentioned over and over is because God's the one that is accomplishing this mission. Brothers and sisters, do you see that? Verse, look at verse 18. Look at what it says. It doesn't say, that, praise the Lord, the Gentiles have made a good decision. Look, 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 look at what it says. It says God did that. God just granted repentance. He gave them repentance. They repented. But God did this. Praise to His name. Praise to His name. This is a work of the sovereign God. He continues with this same theme in verse 21. He goes out of His way to tell us that the hand of the Lord is with these men. They're not bearing this fruit and bringing about these results with their own hand. This is the hand of God at work in His church. God is the one fulfilling the mission. God is the one accomplishing the mission. You see it again in verse 23. What does it look like when God transforms a major city? Well, according to Barnabas, you get there and you look at it and you evaluate it. You say, huh, that's the grace of God. Same exact thing. This is God at work. This is God at work. This is His power and His sovereign authority. And I'll just mention this. If you, are, if you have a weak and defective view of the sovereignty of God in salvation, of the power that Jesus exerts to finish His mission, then you're going to have a weak and defective response in your worship to God and your praise to His holy name. You're not going to be able to give Him the glory that is due His name. This is God at work among the nations. God at work in the midst of His church. 
And I want to jump into our modern world, and I'll close with just a few reminders. And I want us to celebrate together that Jesus is still doing this. Jesus is still doing the things that we're reading about in Acts 10 and Acts 11, that we're going to see happen again in Acts 13, Acts 14. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still doing this stuff. He's not just a historical Christ and once upon a time this happened. It's still happening because Jesus is at the right hand of God reigning over all of history. And I want you to know today with certainty, okay, with certainty that the things that we're seeing Jesus do in Acts 11 are still happening today. And we'll break really quickly into a quick history lesson, okay? 1974 is an important date in world missions. Jot a few notes down if you've never heard this before. Some of you have heard me mention this. 1974. In 1974, something historic happened regarding world missions. 1974. The world gathering of global churches called the Lausanne Congress. The Congress of World Evangelism, 1974. At this conference, God used a man named Ralph Winter, and he was used by God to awaken the church to the biblical meaning of the word nations, the New Testament word ethnos. Some of the things that Ryan taught us last week. And so, in this pivotal moment of church history, God used this man to correct a wrong understanding of nations. Nations. Prior to this time, almost everybody operated under the assumption that nations were geopolitical states like China. Like the state of China as we know it with the head, its government, its head, and its geopolitical boundary. At this conference, because of this man laying out the, the word of God, there was a shift. And for the first time in recent history that we know of, there was a massive shift in how the church of Jesus understood what nations are, what the ethnos are. And they're not geopolitical states like China. They're people groups. They're families. They're tribes within the nation state. So they're not, not nations aren't China as we know it, but people groups within China, like the Han Chinese people, or the Wei people of China, or the Uyghur people of China, or the Jat people of Pakistan, or the Shaikh of Bangladesh, people groups. All the families is what God said in Genesis chapter 12. And for, and for the first time in recent history, the church was awakened to this. And looking back, um, mission leaders uh, even say that the church was delivered from a condition called people blindness. That there were people groups that didn't have the gospel and we didn't even know about it. Because all we were thinking is we got to get the gospel to Russia. We got to get the gospel to China. We got to get the gospel to Pakistan. And we weren't thinking about tribes, families, and people groups. But there was a shift. 1974. Coming out of this meeting, 
In the following decades, the church of Jesus Christ has responded with power in a powerful way. God has awakened His church to a large degree of what it looks like to go after the mission of Jesus Christ. And He has sharpened the Great Commission focus of the church to reach all people groups with the Gospel. And I want to just pause just for a moment. And I, I, I want to win you over to glorify Christ and celebrate the saving work of God in our day and in our generation. And I want to make us aware that maybe more than any other time in human history, we are seeing more done in our generation, possibly, than any generation prior to us to finish the mission of Jesus Christ. What's the mission? You remember what Jesus said? The gospel will be, be, be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then what? And then the end will come. And then the end will come. I want us to realize the uniqueness of our generation, of the times that we're living in. This is an exciting time to serve Jesus Christ. This is an exciting time to pray for this all nations mission. This is an exciting time to send missionaries to the unreached. To even go yourself and take the gospel. Jesus is on his throne. Even today. And he's powerfully advancing his mission. And it will be finished. Nothing has been left to chance. It will be finished. I'll give you just an example. Just a quick example of what Jesus is doing in our day. And you need to have a few categories. It would be very helpful for you to have a few categories that mission leaders use to describe people groups today. And two of which are the labels unreached and unengaged. So some people groups are labeled unreached people groups. Some people groups are labeled unengaged people groups. And those who study these things and give their life to um, studying the progress of the gospel among the nations. Here's where we've landed. Collective agreement of the church of Jesus Christ that an unreached people group is any one of those tribes and families and people groups that less than 2% of the population identifies evangelical Christian. And the church looks at people groups like that and we see a deficiency that these people groups need to be, the church here needs to be strengthened. And we want to get them to a place to where they can have a real indigenous witness to their people group. A sustainable work to take the gospel to their own people group. And so that's a category that some people groups are unreached with the gospel. And we want to labor to see, labor to see them reached with the gospel. But there's another category, more severe, called unengaged people groups. And this is a people group, and we're not perfect in this, and we don't know everything, and only God does. But these unengaged people groups are people groups where we're not aware of one known worker, one known missionary, one known laborer for Jesus Christ that's dwelling amongst this people and telling them about the only name that can wash away their sins. Nobody. Complete and total darkness. That's what the term unengaged. That's the connotations that it has. And so brothers and sisters. If unreached people groups are 
to burden us as the church of Jesus that we want to we want to see the people who dwell in darkness. We want to see them see a great light. We want to see Jesus gather a people from all the peoples. And if that's a burden to us, then unengaged people groups should be intolerable to us. That we would never get to a place where we could tolerate that nobody's there. Nobody's preaching. Nobody's sharing. They don't have radio broadcast or New Testament in their own language. They don't even have missionaries. There are no churches. It is a land of deep darkness with no light. That's an intolerable thing for us. Unengaged people groups. And what I want to encourage us with is that every single people group at this point in time, and Acts 10 and Acts 11 is like that, and yet, for, for, with steady progress over a couple of thousand years, Jesus has been clicking off one people group after another with His Gospel. He's been drawing out a church from all the nations. And I want to just give you an example of the kinds of things that we're seeing in our day. So, here's the category. Unengaged people groups in our day. And just to make this a little more vivid, we'll say unengaged people groups with over one million people. So we're not talking about you know, a 30-person tribe. We're talking about over a million people that do not have the gospel, do not have a preacher, do not have a church, do not have a Bible, only darkness, unengaged. In 1995, the best statistics that we have... Tell us that there were 2,100 unengaged people groups with over 1 million people. No gospel, no known workers, just darkness. So I want to ask you to do something this morning. If you were alive in 1995, which is when that stat was given, I want you to raise your hand and I want you to keep it up for just a moment. All right, look around really quick. And I want you to notice that we're talking about the vast majority in the room. What we're about to talk about happened while you were alive. While you're walking around on planet Earth, you're about to get a glimpse to what King Jesus is doing at the right hand of God. You put your hand down. Let's talk about five years later in the year 2000. What is he doing? 2 Corinthians 5 says he's in Christ reconciling the world for himself. And the unbelieving mocker says, yeah, we don't see any of that. We don't see any evidence of Jesus reigning at the right hand of God. Oh yeah, five years later, 2,100 unengaged people groups with over a million people turned into 475. In five years, what were you doing between 1995 and the year 2000? Because Jesus was, was gathering together His all-nations Bride, do you see this? This is not just theory. The mission is being finished as we speak. It will happen. Nothing is left to chance. Let's fast forward 10 years later to the year 2010. Brothers and sisters, the best statistics we have is that within a 15-year period, 2,100 massive unengaged people groups turned into 30 one. 15 years. Hallelujah. Praise to His name. He did that. What were you doing? 
Something boring compared to that, right? He's redeeming nations, ethnos, peoples, tribes, and languages. All the nations are being gathered. This is what He's doing at the right hand of God. He is ruling and He's reigning. And again, I say that this is an exciting time to serve Jesus Christ. That the mission is being finished. Progress is being made. And what we want to do as a local church is we want to respond when we hear about what Jesus is doing. We want to respond with a heart that says, Lord, it's our privilege to join you in this mission. And I want to highlight that word privilege. Jesus, it is our privilege to join you. It's not just our duty to go and to preach. It is our privilege to go and to preach the name of Jesus. It's your privilege not to waste your life, but to connect it to this all nations mission. It's our privilege. It's our privilege. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's our privilege, Lord, to be any part of that we can be. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. Let them praise you, Lord. This is exactly how the prophet Isaiah responds. So as we lean in today and we get a glimpse into the counsels of God and the mission of God and what the Lord God is doing in our generation, Isaiah had that same experience. And he had a point in his life where he leaned in and got a glimpse of the mind of God and the heart of God. And he heard God say, whom shall we send and who will go for us? He got a glimpse of the plan. And you know what he said? He didn't say, Lord, if you really want me to do it, I'll do it. You know what the Bible says was his response? He, he's sitting over there considering it his privilege. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. It's my privilege to serve you, Jesus, among the nations. Send me, Lord. That's the heartbeat that we want to go for at Grace Community Church. Lord, it's our privilege to serve you. It's our privilege to send laborers among the nations. And so consider this and consider it well. We are called to worship Jesus Christ for the authority and the sovereignty that he's manifesting as the mission is being finished. And we're also called to be wise. And what does wisdom look like? It looks like ordering your life in such a way. Do you understand this? That your life makes sense to the degree that it's connected to this all nations mission and the eternal purpose of God. That makes sense when a created being gets a glimpse into what the Creator's doing. The proper response of the created being is I want to align everything in my life. I want to align it to what God is doing in the world and among the nations. And this is our privilege. This is what we want to ask God to do at Grace Community Church. I want to leave you with this glorious thought to consider. Okay? We just got a glimpse of Jesus finishing that mission. And I mean this, that it's just a matter of time before it's finished. It is just a matter of time before that gospel is preached in a global way. And then the end comes and we see the face of Christ. And I want you to think about this glorious moment 
as, as all of redemptive history plays out, we serve the Christ who hung on a bloody cross and he, the Bible says he screamed this with a loud voice. It is finished. It's done. Jesus finished the work. And then I want you to think about how glorious it's going to be when we're gathered together with all the peoples, all the tribes, all the nations, all nations bride of Christ. And we get to respond to our Lord and we get to say, Jesus, the mission is finished. The mission that you sent us into the world to accomplish, Lord, it is finished. The all nations bride has been gathered. The all nations blessing has arrived. And to you, Lord, shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Of all the peoples. It is finished. Let's pray together. Lord, we worship you today for your grace, Lord. Your grace in action, Lord. Your grace that moves you, God, to bring salvation. Lord Jesus, we worship you today as the Savior who has pursued salvation with all of his might, with all of his authority. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to respond to you in a fitting way, Lord. That you would help us to respond to your mission, Lord, with all of our might. Lord, help us as a local church. To, to come after you and to go after this all nations mission with everything that we have. With all of our resources, with all of our strength, with fervent prayers, with tremendous zeal, through hardship, through persecution. Help us, Lord, to give everything we have, God. It's our privilege to serve you. God, we ask that your hand would be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.